Thanks so much, Greg and Kelsey. Really appreciate you guys leading worship for us this morning. Um, you know, as I look at, oh, that's a good catch. As I look at the guidelines that our governor put out, I feel like we're going to be here for a while. It's going to be a few months of us doing Facebook Live and, again, figuring out what church looks like for, for a community of people, not just those maybe tuning into our live stream. We so value you being here with us. And at the same time, renew as people who know and love each other. And so I just want to continue to encourage you to connect with each other and connect with Jesus. Because what I thought would just be a few weeks or a month or so, it looks like it's turning out to be four to six months of us doing virtual church. But it's been really sweet at the same time. For me, the most encouraging, one of the most encouraging part of the day is us coming together at 9 a.m. to do devotionals, to be with each other and connect and be with the Lord as well. And then we started one at 5 p.m. also. And over the last week, I'd say about 30-plus people from our community has joined and connected in that way together. And I want to invite you to do the same. I want to invite you into this community because it's, it's just been really special for us uh, to see each other every day, to hear each other's stories. I've learned so much from the people who have joined. And, and there's even one sister who's come very recently. And through her sharing, I feel closer to Jesus. And I think we all feel that way. I, I think about Saturday, just yesterday, when we sat together and read the text, was in silence and prayed. And there was this deep sense that Jesus was meeting us. And it was actually kind of emotional. Um, I've just been so enriched by that time. So please join us for that. And also we have all of our regular small groups going from youth all the way to married with kids uh, scattered throughout the week. And then we come together on Sundays to do Facebook live watch parties. So that's just an amazing community to join and to, again, pray for each other, read the word together and care for each other's lives. Because all those things are essential to being a part of a church. And we want to invite you into that. And so there's a form on our description in, in the Facebook Live post. And if you would just fill that out, um, in a, it takes 10 or 20 seconds. We'd love to handhold you into any of uh, these small groups, the Zoom uh, Bible study, or also our workouts. I I think maybe if you just comment, we might say hi too. But we're, we would love to connect with people uh, during this time. And I just think it's easy to isolate. It's easy to feel alone. But you don't have to. And, and we're a community that has really become closer during this time. Lastly, we do have online ways to give. Maybe some of you have been really uh, used to giving checks on Sundays. But we want to separate a time for you as well to offer uh, financially to the Lord. And if you're having hardship and, and in our community, we want to know about that as well because we, we hope that this would be a blessing not only to our church, but to those of us who are struggling with job loss in this really difficult time. All right, we do a question every Sunday. And uh, if you're watching with a few family members or if you're in a watch party or if you're watching alone, you can totally interact with us over the comment section on our, on our live feed. But we ask a question, and it's just kind of getting our juices flowing as we move into 
this time in God's word. So what's a bad thing that's happened in your life that you would have prevented? So if you could go back in time um, to a season or to a moment and you're like, man, I would have stood up for myself or I would have exercised my voice more. Uh, why don't we go ahead and share about that? We'll do four minutes and then we'll come back and jump into the text this morning. All right. All right. I hope you guys got to share some terrible memories. So mine was seventh grade science class. Call her out. Her name's Miss Kennedy. You know, just last name, so it's not terrible. But she was the worst teacher I've ever had. And I just want to set up the backdrop of this. I was like a great kid, okay? <laughs> Maybe I'm biased. My mom told me that as well. Maybe she's biased. But I basically was really compliant. I didn't do well in school, but I, was, I wasn't disruptive. So, you know, back in the day, you have an O for outstanding, S plus, S, no? You guys still do that now? So, so I would get O's on all of the behavioral columns in elementary school. My only recollection of, of my whole elementary school experience was maybe like two detentions, right? I got two detentions in five, six years. Sixth grade, no detentions. Seventh grade, no detentions in any class except for my science teacher uh, in seventh grade, Miss Kennedy. And I would call it bullying. I would call it abuse. You know, when you walk into class from uh, lunchtime or when kids are just kind of talking after an assignment, everyone's, you know, chattering, the teacher has to call attention back to her. And most of the time, a teacher says, you know, silent coyote. They count the three. They say, hey, everyone, we're starting up the lecture again. Miss Kennedy would say, Wilson, you have detention. And that's how she would get the whole class's attention every single day. It was horrific, okay? And so I spent a year, my seventh grade year, doing detention two to three times a week. This is actually a little painful for me to share about. So at lunchtime, when all my friends are playing basketball, people are hanging out, catching up, cramming some homework in, I was washing cafeteria tables, wiping them down, sweeping up the floor, like two to three times a week, sometimes four times a week. And literally, the office lady just felt terrible for me because she's the one, you know, processing my detention. She was like, man, you must be a terrible kid, even though you look kind of normal. And of course, if I were to go back in time or if I was the person I am now, I would have talked to the principal about it. I would have asked my parents to talk to the principal. I, I would have, uh, you know, accused her of, of something, something terrible. But I, I wasn't. I was a seventh grade kid. I was really compliant, and I just kind of took it. And I, and I think about what it means to undo something bad, what it means to be someone who at times just feels like a victim or feels helpless or feels powerless. And maybe that's the greatest distinguishing factor from horror movies versus action films. It's, it's the main character. It's not really the antagonist. It's not the villain. The villains are similar in many ways. They're evil. They're powerful. They're trying to cause harm to the main character or their family or, or society. It's the main character in these films that make them either a horror movie or action film. The main character in a horror movie is running, is afraid. It, it has no way to combat this terrible enemy. In an action movie, he's not a victim. She's a hero. 
She's powerful. She can stand toe to toe with her oppressor. And at the end, uh, they overcome them. When I look at the cross, when I think about Jesus and the crucifixion, it's a horrific event. Maybe one of the most horrific events in history. Crucifixion was bleeding out. The flogging process uh, made your back unrecognizable as it tore through flesh um, and you can see the bone. I mean, this is, this is an inhumane type of torture and death. But is it, a, is it a horror movie or is it an action film? Is Jesus a victim to, to these people who are overpowering him, forcing him in chains to endure such pain and suffering? Or did he have control and power? Well, when we think about the sovereignty of God, we, we understand that sovereignty means that Jesus is in control. And this is one of the tenets of our faith, that Jesus, God, is in control of not only his life, but all of human history. And when we look at this last chapter of Matthew, chapter 26, we see him exercise control again and again. He's saying that I'm not a victim, I'm not powerless, I'm not being overtaken by evil, but I know exactly what's going to happen to me. He's foretelling his death. He knows who is going to betray him as he dips the bread and gives it to Judas. He knows why he's dying for this future banquet where he can have fellowship with us all. He knows when he's dying. He he predicts the Passover in his death. And we look at this in chapter 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of the 11th bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go to the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher said, my appointed time is near. I will go to, I will, I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The man who I had dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me the son of man will go just as it is written about him but woe to the man who betrays the son of man it would be better for him if he was not born then judas the one who would betray him said surely you don't mean me rabbi jesus answered you have said so if you look at the portions of the highlighted text we see Jesus displaying his kingship as he authoritatively asks his disciples to to use a man's house for a banquet. This is the way a king would talk to his subjects. And then you see Jesus saying, my appointed time is near. He knows when. He says, one of you will betray me. And he predicts it's Judas. He knows who. And then he knows why he is going to pass. So we see Jesus with immense control over the situation. I think when you think about the sovereignty of God, when you really understand it, you understand how big Jesus is. 
just the enormity of his power and control of his knowledge in history. And that might not be more displayed than when he takes huge historic events and say that I'm going to make that look small because it was actually about me. And he takes the greatest event in Israel's history and does that. In verses 17 to 19, we have the word Passover in repetition. The author, Matthew, is highlighting this word, letting people know that Jesus' death happens at the Passover. This is a significant event. It's like July 4th for Americans when we overthrew the British, we became an independent country. It was, it was like that, but even greater for Israel. The Passover event um, was deep into Israel's history. Joseph went to Egypt to help the Egyptians out of a famine by the sovereignty of God. He became second in, in Egypt, and then he moved his whole family in. And at that time, Israel wasn't a country. It wasn't a nation. It was just a tribe of people. But as they were in Egypt for 400 years, because of prosperity, because the land that was given to them, they were able to multiply. So they had many descendants, close to a million of them. And because of that, the Egyptians, which was the most powerful country at the time, became fearful of the Israelites. Uh, maybe they would see them as immigrants, that they were overpopulating their, is Egypt. And they were afraid that one day, if there was an uh, opposing army against them, the Jews might turn against the Egyptian people with the opposing army. So Pharaoh puts them in slavery, and then, and then God sends Moses to deliver them. And at the apex of the story, we have the 10th plague. And this is because Pharaoh had rejected God's command to let his people to worship. And God continues to escalate the plagues. On the 10th one, he sends an angel of death into Egypt to kill the firstborn of every family. And the way that you don't have your firstborn die is that you kill a lamb, you put the blood over the, the post of your house, over the frame of your front door, and the angel of death passes over. That's why it's called the Passover. And there are actually Egyptians who also started believing in Yahweh that killed a lamb and the angel of death not only passed over Jewish homes, but some Egyptian homes as well because they put their faith in this God. Again, after this moment, the Red Sea happens, Mariah Carey sings, you know, everyone's crossing over. And then these people who were slaves become the people of God. When the laws come down, that's when they become a nation under law, under God, and, and they live out his story in history. So for the, for the Jewish people, Passover was the biggest celebration and remembrance of this time, remembrance of who God was. During the Passover meal, they would drink uh, a little bit of salt water to remember the tears of that moment in history. They would eat herbs that were bitter to remember the bitterness of slavery. And then the apex of the meal was the lamb. They would kill a lamb to remember that because of the death of this lamb, they, the angel of death passed over their house. But all the other animal sacrifices was a throwback to this moment as well because the Jews would, once a year, 
kill an animal for the forgiveness of sin. It was part of their sacrificial system. They would go up to the temple. The priest would take their animal, kill it, and, and the forgiveness of God would be extended to that family. And what Jesus is saying in the sovereignty of God, in the grandeur, in his bigness, he's saying that moment in history that everyone's focused on was really about me. That instead of, and, it's, and I'm going to extend what happens here to the rest of humanity. So instead of Israel being freed from slavery, all people will be freed from sin. Instead of the lamb being sacrificed for the sins of Israel, I'm going to be the lamb sacrificed during Passover for the sins of humanity. And instead of doing a Passover meal to remember God's goodness in this moment, I want you to take communion and remember me who shed my blood and my body for your sins. You know, the sheep was never an adequate sacrifice for forgiveness. The lamb was never an adequate sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. They were only adequate because they were a representation of Jesus who would be sacrificed for our sin. And that's how he's introduced by John the Baptist. One of the first things said about him is, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And for us, it's a random animal. But for the Israelites, for the Jews, they understood that lamb was to forgive sin. And now Jesus is saying, I am the Lamb of God. Now, if you would just take a step back and think about, again, the bigness and sovereignty of God. Jesus didn't just come to fulfill words about him in Old Testament prophecies. He actually fulfills a historic event. He takes the most important moment of Israel's history and fills it with meaning. It's not about the lamb. It's about the son. It's not just about slavery to another nation. It's about slavery to sin. And it's not just about one nation being blessed and liberated. It's about all nations receiving Jesus and becoming a part of his kingdom and his family. It's really difficult to equivocate that, right? I, I can't think of even like a fictional story where the hero is fulfilling a world event and making it look small. I try to put that into words, like saying, you know, D-Day for America was actually in a prelude and a pre-course to my life. And what am I doing then? Like, <laughs> it just... It, but it's mind-boggling. That's, that's what Jesus is saying, that the greatest event in Israel's history is just foreshadowing him. It's a, it's a prelude to him. It's actually a microcosm of what he will do. Think about the bigness of God. I think when we stand and marvel at how big he is, at this new covenant in verse 28 that he's making with all people, making the most significant covenant of, of Moses looks small, making the Abrahamic covenant where he's about to sacrifice his son. Again, another foreshadow of the father sacrificing Jesus looks small 
building upon it in ways that are unimaginable, we marvel at what Jesus is doing. We marvel at his bigness when we looked at Matthew chapter 25, him filling the skies with angels, him sitting on the throne, him gathering all people in all nations across time at his feet. There is a bigness to Jesus. And we need to grapple with that. But when we see how big he is, we, if we get lost there, it becomes, Jesus kind of becomes distant. He becomes removed. He becomes unempathetic. And so he reveals his smallness as well, his intimacy, the way he pushes and prods at our heart, the, the many conversations he has in, in the mundane moments of our life. But if we get lost in his smallness, we become familiar. He becomes just a friend and in some ways just a human friend. It's the bigness of God that makes him washing feet profound. It's him gathered, gathering the nations and then inviting Wilson in. That brings me to my knees. Let's explore the smallness of Jesus in this passage as well. And I think I see it in Judas. When he tells his disciples, one of you will betray me. It says they were sad. And they said, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Now think about that. They didn't just all say, it's Judas, you know? Like when you look at the Jesus films, it kind of feels like they should in harmony say, it's Judas, because he's like always looking down in the corner, rubbing his hands together, right? Like that's Judas, and it's obviously him. But he was, he was one of the boys, and, and he was maybe one of the most trusted disciples amongst the disciples. Who do you give your money to? If someone's handling money, like the people, I know who handles money for Renew, and I trust them. I'm not going to have a visitor come in and be like, hey, it's my first time I renew. Oh, can you count the offering for me, right? The, who has the passcodes to your bank account? It's probably just you and your wife. If you really love your mom, maybe she has the passcodes for some unknown reason, right? But that's it. Judas had the passcodes to their bank account. They, the disciples accused themselves before they accused Judas. He was one of them. And I believe that Jesus loved Judas too. That the way Judas interacted with Jesus was like the other disciples. He washed Peter's feet. He washed John's feet. And he washed Judas's feet. Judas had every privilege that a person can have when it comes to following Christ. And I believe that in this passage, as Jesus is predicting who would betray him, in these last moments, he's saying, Judas, you're my friend. You don't, you don't have to be the one that does this. Stay with me. He warns him severely, but right before he washes his feet. And there's this tug of war between God's sovereignty, the bigness of God. And I think, but it's in the smallness 
that I f- we find free will, we find Jesus interact with that free will, we find Jesus whispering and gentle and prodding and pulling at our hearts to know him and to choose him. I believe that at the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas walks up to Jesus and kisses him to turn him over for 30 pieces of silver like a slave, Jesus says, Judas, you betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. And I think he felt every word. He felt Judas. And all the times he said his name, when they were laughing around the table, when they were traveling, when he was asking him to do ministry with him. He felt betray. He felt his heart break. It's one of his groomsmen. It's one of his bridesmaids, if he was a woman, right? It's one of, it's his closest friend. And he felt kiss. This, this moment of physical intimacy, you kiss your your friends and your family and and that was the knife. I think I would prefer a knife over a kiss. You see the smallness of Jesus in that moment? Him feeling every word. Him entering into the space of Judas and beckoning him and reasoning with him and warning him and calling him in. Jesus is fulfilling the greatest moment of history, but he's still interacting with his disciples in the smallest moments. And I think that's what communion looks like too. There's this, let me read a few things before that. Jesus is fully sovereign, but Judas is fully responsible, right? The son of man will go just as it was written about him. He's going to die, But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. He's saying, you're still responsible even in my sovereignty. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 does this again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, divine sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. Again, human responsibility. In the bigness of God, there's the... The sovereignty, his perfect sovereignty, nothing happens outside of his will. He's in complete control. He writes human history as he desires it to be. And then there's a smallness of God as well as he interacts with our human will, with our humanity. And communion is is that space too. Communion is Jesus fulfilling the Passover Dying for the sins of the world. Allowing everyone to find freedom and, and to choose him. When he sheds his blood, he f- he's doing it for all of humanity. And, and then at the very same time, we hold it in our hands, don't we? At the very same time, we're saying, Jesus is saying, you remember me. That it was for you. It was for you that I died. And you choose to receive me, to take this blood that was shed for you, to take this bread that was broken, this body that was broken 
for you and you receive the forgiveness. There's a, there's a bigness to this. And then there's Ben and Greg and Kenan and Liz and Kelsey and Irwin. Him dying for each of you. And him asking each of you to partake in his death. And that's the invitation this morning. I think about the hundreds of people who, are, who will be watching um, our sermon this morning and how God is moving into each of your lives and inviting you in, saying, I died for you. Do you want the forgiveness that I'm offering? Do you want to give your life to me? That there's a smallness in his death too because he's thinking of you. You know, he ends that last section with, I, I won't eat or drink until, until um, my laptop died. Until, was it? Erwin? No. Until this, this great banquet, this coming day. And Jesus is talking about um, the new kingdom. He, he is projecting into us spending eternity with him. That as we take his blood and body shed for us, we're taking on this new kingdom, this heaven in which we'll spend eternity with Christ. Can we take communion together? And as you take it, yeah, it was for everybody. Yes, Jesus loves every person on earth. There is a grandness and bigness to God. And then he loves you too. Not just generic you, but you, you. And as we take communion, we remember that he died for me. He shed his blood for me. And he loves me. Go ahead and take out your elements. Jesus said, this is his body, my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we take the bread, would we connect personally and intimately with the Lord? And know that his, when his body was being pierced, it was for you. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, as we take the elements this morning, we do it in your bigness that the king of the universe, the one who writes history and then fulfills it, is in this very small moment forgiving me of my sins, wrestling with my will, and asking me to trust you. Asking me to remember you. How you died. And how you thought of me. God, thank you so much. For dying on the cross. For my sins. And for welcoming me. Into your kingdom. And forgiving me. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to move into worship. But I do want to, again, extend an invitation. Maybe some of you are new to this whole Christian thing. I just want you to know that God sees you. As much or as little as you're interested in exploring him, he's always been interested and intentionally pursuing you. He loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. And becoming Christian is, is pretty simple at the end of the day. It's saying, man, I've, I've done things that I'm not proud of. I've, I've done evil. I've lied to someone. I've lust over someone I wasn't supposed to. I've hurt someone in my life. And I need forgiveness. I need Jesus to forgive me. And I want to follow him. And if that's you this morning, if you want to make that decision, I'm going to lead us, again, in a simple prayer that makes sense of, of what we talked about today, of him dying on the cross for our sins. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for loving me so much that you want a relationship with me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins so that I don't have to pay for it. I, I just receive your forgiveness this morning. And I pray that you would be the Lord of my life. I want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.